We are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Uh, We have entitled this series, Saturate. And the reason why we've called it Saturate is because we think that the Gospel not only goes wide, it doesn't just go to all the nations, but it also goes deep and it saturates into the crevices of our hearts. It changes us. And we see that in the book of Acts. And today, we're going to be looking at a, a very interesting uh, passage in the book of Acts. Probably the most peculiar out of all of the passage, passages in the book of Acts. Uh, which is really about uh, the martyrdom of Stephen. So, this is the last phase of the mission. If you remember from Acts 1.8, uh, the Scriptures say that Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem. So think of Jerusalem right here. In all Judea and Samaria, so it's kind of going out more into the ends of the earth. Well, so far in, our, in the book of Acts, we're only in Jerusalem still. God is using uh, Peter's preaching, Stephen's preaching, using it mightily uh, to bring uh, the lost to Himself. So what we see over the next few weeks is that four characters have very important roles in the Gospel going to uh, Samaria and to Judea. And those characters are Stephen. As I said, we're going to look at his martyrdom today. How his life was taken for the cause of the Gospel. Philip, who was an evangelist, Saul of Tarsus, who's introduced in our story today that we're looking at. This, this Pharisee that's, that's a, that, that hates Christians who's turned toward the Lord. And then we see Cornelius. Now, you think, oh, Cornelius, that's kind of a, uh, an obscure character to talk about. Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. So what Jesus promises in Acts 1.8, we see Cornelius, it's really happening. The world's really being turned upside down. So with that stage being set, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council, and they set up false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face. And it was like the face of an angel. So what's going on here? Stephen, if we look back in Acts chapter 6, just a few verses before, Andrew, my friend uh, from Kentucky, preached this a few weeks ago. The first deacons are installed. They're to, they're to care uh, for the most vulnerable people in the community. So Stephen, a man full of truth, a man full of grace, a man full of wisdom, as the Scriptures say, is appointed as a deacon. So he's carrying out his functions as a deacon. 
Uh, but as Stephen is in, he's debating with them about Jesus. He's contending for the faith. He's witnessing as Jesus called him to do in Acts 1. Some opposition arises against him. And they seize him and they bring him up on charges. Now the charges that they bring him up on are very important. The charges are twofold. One is blasphemy against God's house or the temple. Okay, now why is that so important? God's house or the temple was the place believed that God's presence resided. So he's blaspheming against the place where God's presence resides. The second is against God's law. God's Word. And so, what happens in light of this? Well, he's framed. He's unjustly framed for a crime that he didn't commit. Now, as we look at what happens from this, I think what we're going to discover is that there are some dynamics at play for a faithful witness. I think we would look at Stephen, and some people would say, man, maybe he wasn't that faithful of a witness. He lost his life for the cause. But I would disagree with that, and I would say that Stephen was a very faithful witness. Not only does he answer the charges that are brought against him, as he's asked to do in Acts 7.1, but he, he draws out the truth of the Gospel for all to hear undeniable truth. He, he, he basically shows what the weightier matters of the law is. He shows how the law really points to Jesus and how we can all be addressed in the, in the level of our hearts through, the, through God's Word. And so, uh, here's how I'm framing this sermon. is that uh, I'm going to talk about four dynamics of a faithful witness. Now, there are more dynamics of a faithful witness. I'm just going to talk about four that we find in uh, the story of Stephen's martyrdom. Now, so what is a dynamic? A dynamic is a force that affects motion. Or we could say it like this, conviction that undergirds behavior. It's what's underneath the hood that causes us to do what we do. There were things going on in Stephen's life that gave him the courage to stand boldly for the cause of the Gospel in the midst of adversity. So the big idea where, where I'm kind of pointing this whole thing is this. Is that the love from God and for neighbor, propel us to live as faithful witnesses of Jesus. The love from God and for neighbor propel us to live as faithful witnesses of Jesus. So it has to be a love from God because we have no love within ourselves as 1 John 4 says. We love because He first loves us. So as God loves us and we receive His love, we love neighbor. Because this is what God's law says. He said you can boil it down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So, so we see that kind of theme going on. And because we love our neighbor, we're willing to be uncomfortable. Stephen is willing to lose his life for the sake of the Gospel. It's not to glorify Stephen. It's for those who haven't heard the name Jesus or who have heard the name Jesus and reject Him. As I said earlier in Philippians 3, it's everything is a loss compared to knowing Jesus. I really believe in my heart that Stephen, he actually believed that. So this is going to be intense, but we're going to go for it right now. First point is this. Witnesses of Jesus have a testimony. So we notice that Stephen is a man that's filled with God. We even notice in his death that he's a man that was filled with God to the end. I look at Stephen's death and I think, man, there's more of Jesus in his death than that's in my life. 
I'm convicted by, by the, the radical nature that Stephen is willing to stand. John Stott says it like this. He says that most people think of Stephen as the first Christian martyr, and that's the big thing they think about Stephen. And he says that's true, but what we also, also must look at is the vital role that Stephen's death plays in the Gospel advancing. See, we look at Stephen and we're like, oh man, he lost his life. I mean, that's a failed witness. But what happens after this is the diaspora, which is when, Brandon's going to talk about this next week, but this is when the, the church splits up and they go to the ends of the wor- world because of persecution. And guess what goes with the church when they go to the ends of the world? The Gospel. You see how God's working in the midst of even those painful situations. Now the big question that we've got to ask ourselves, this is the hook, this is the, this is the thing that, that makes us say, okay, why, why do I need to hear this today, Ryan? And it's this, I was very convicted uh, as I'm studying evangelism and discipleship at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary uh, for two weeks, a couple weeks ago. Very convicted uh, by this fact, and maybe you'll be convicted of it uh, as well. Why do I lack the conviction of testifying as a witness of Jesus? Here's what I discovered about myself. Is that often, I'm very bold in the pulpit. But I'm mute when I get in the community. I'm mute when I get in my neighborhood. I'm mute when I get in my home. But I'm bold in the pulpit. I don't know what it's like for you. Maybe you find the same thing is true in your life. When you're in your holy huddle, maybe you're very bold. But when you get around those that that might believe something different than you, all of a sudden you're, you're silent. There's this story about a guy that came to Charles Spurgeon that was a... Uh, he was a student in his preaching school, his pastor's school. And he says, you know, Spurgeon, I, I got I to know, you know, you get so many conversions when you preach. People are, are begging to come to Jesus. And, and you would meet Him on Monday mornings and you would share the Gospel and you would pray for them. I, I want to do, I want to see that happen in my preaching. I want to see that happen in my ministry in the community. I want to see people begging to come to Jesus. And Spurgeon, he asks this student, he says, well, you don't actually expect for people to come to faith every time you preach or share life with them, do you? And the guy goes, of course not. And Spurgeon goes, that's your problem, because I actually do. When you testify as a witness of Jesus, whether it be by just simply sharing life with them or speaking the words of the Gospel, do you expect the dead to be raised? Do you expect that God can actually change people's lives and draw them to Himself? New City, I'm, I'm so convicted about this reality that I've just settled in the past and I want to see God bring His children home. I want to see Him bring them to Himself. And, and we've got to ask ourselves these questions. Why am I indifferent from the call to proclaim the Gospel? Why? Is it because I'm afraid of what others will think of me? Is it because I'm not confident in the truth that I believe? Why am I a witness of Jesus who doesn't have a testimony or is unwilling to share the truth of the Gospel? It puts us all on the stand. We all have to answer that question. What do we do with the Gospel and the command that Jesus gives us to go and to make disciples? What do we do with that reality? So let's, let's frame it up like this. There's a difference in a witness and a testimony. What's a witness? 
You know, Jesus said we're going to be His witnesses in Acts 1.8 if we were Christians. So a witness is a person who sees or experiences an event take place. They're, we're witnesses of lots of things. I'm witnesses of my kids beating up on each other all the time. You know? I'm witnesses of... You know, I was a witness of an accident a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're, we're witnesses of lots of events and things taking place. So that kind of describes our identity, but what's our activity that flows out of that? Well, a witness is useless unless he testifies. I mean, you, you've probably watched shows before where they're trying to get someone to testify in kind of this courtroom drama kind of a scenario, and they're, they're unwilling to testify because of what it might cost them. But their testimony could lead uh, to some great revelation of truth. To testify means to give evidence as a witness. Those that have been touched by Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, have a testimony. We testify to the realities of who Jesus is and what that means in us. It's a very personal thing. It's, not, it's, it's objective truth that, of the Gospel that, 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 that we're all sinners and we needed Jesus to come and stand in our place and to be our righteousness and to bring us to reconcile us to the Father. That's the objective truth but there's always the, the subject of truth as well where the Gospel touches us. It's not just at arm's length, but it touches us. It impacts us. And because of that, we got a story to tell. we got a narrative to tell that was different than the one that we were born with. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 12-11 that says, and they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Now, John is talking about <clears throat> the martyrs conquering the enemy. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the truth of the gospel, and the word of their testimony. There's this objective truth that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. And in him we have truth, we have life. But there's also this subjective truth that, that belongs to us, that is ours, that we embody. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We offer the words of the Gospel, and we also, we also offer the presence of Jesus. We, also, we offer the words of Jesus and the presence of Jesus as witnesses of Jesus. So what does it look like to not only offer the words, but the presence of Jesus in the way that we live our lives as those that have a testimony of the reality of who God is? How, how do we offer ourselves in that way? You know, in, in, with the recent tragedies that have taken place in the last week or so, I've heard a common theme. You know, social media is a dangerous place right now. You need to... You need to kind of stay away from that. But, but what social media does is it tells a narrative of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and kind of the, the dominating narrative that I see, especially from, from folks that are not believers, is this. Come on, America, we're better than this. We're better than this. We're, we're better than killing each other. We're better than all of this injustice. We're better than this. And I, and I gotta admit, as I read the Bible, I don't see this anywhere in it. We're not better than this. We, we're just seeing 
the sinful nature of humanity come out. And we've got more cameras to prove it and to show it. These things have been taking place all along. Since the beginning of the world when sinners entered into the world. These things have been taking place. We're not better than this. We're all in desperate need of the, the love of God and the person of Christ to come and give us a different narrative, a different story. As my family and I were at Stone Mountain Park yesterday, we went in the morning because it was only 93 instead of 98. And we decided to go to the playground. And we'd never been to this playground before. And we were at the playground. It's a pretty neat place. The kids were playing around. And we'd been there for maybe 15 minutes. And I, I hear this singing from afar. I hear this singing. And it's like, man, I, I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to hear, okay, these are gospel songs these folks are singing. This is interesting, okay. I mean, there was a, a rally for the Ku Klux Klan, you know, uh, a couple months ago. And now I'm hearing these Christian songs coming out of the same park. This is so crazy. And then I begin to hear it, and it's, they're singing these gospel songs, and I start to feel like, like I'm around the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. Like, I mean, I'm drawn into the singing. And so I, I catch myself getting my son off the slide, and, and uh, you know, we're singing the songs that these saints are singing. And long story short, I end up meeting this church, this predominantly African American church, and their, their pastor, uh, Pastor Philip, that's he and I there, and they had about 100 folks at the park. And the reason why they were at Stone Mountain Park was sure to get a little exercise, but to take, take a stand for the Gospel. To take a stand for Jesus. To, 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 to offer visible and personal presence to the realities of who Jesus is. And i got to tell you, I was drawn to it. A little part of me was convicted by the boldness but most of me was drawn to it. I was drawn to God's people. I was drawn to God's church standing and representing His presence in a sinful world, singing the praises of God. And so we, we sat there and they prayed together for us. And, and it was like we were just humans together in the same place. And it was this beautiful picture of what the Gospel does. As witnesses of Jesus, we stand together with the church. No matter what color you are, no matter what your occupation is, how much money you make, we stand together as the church because the dividing wall of hostility, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, has been torn down. And in the place of two, there is now one new man in Christ, and that's us, the church. And so we stand. We proclaim the gospel, but we also embody the gospel as we stand together. So what does this testimony look like for us? I think a lot of times we can think about how do, how do we develop the right kind of testimony so that people will come to faith in Jesus and we try to work out all these metrics. I'm reminded of John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, there's this incredible story about this blind man. And I'm pretty sure this is the blind man that goes and he puts mud on his eyes. Jesus tells him to go do this. Go put mud on your eyes and then go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll be healed. Now, this guy does this and he's been blind his whole life. And for the first time in his life, he's able to see. And after this, the religious leaders of the day come up and they say, you know, how does this man gotten healed? You know, who sinned? This, this man or his parents, I think is what he says. Who sinned? And you know what the blind man says? It's this beautiful reality of what a testimony is. He said, look, I don't know who sinned. 
he probably said this too. I don't care who sinned. One thing I know, one thing. You know what that one thing is? I was blind. Now I see. I was blind and now I see. That's what a testimony is. Grace touched his heart. You see, it wasn't just physical sight that he received, but he was able to see Jesus as Lord as the Redeemer of all things. The spiritual scales fell off of his eyes, and he was able to see Jesus as beautiful, as the treasure of all treasures to be had. I was blind, but now I see. This was the Gospel for this man. How has the Gospel impacted your life? Where were you blind that you now see? Where were you lame but now you now walk? How has the Gospel touched your life? And if, you're, if you find it difficult to have the testimony of a person changed by grace, we've got to start asking some diagnostic questions. Have I really received God's grace? That's a really tough question to ask, especially in the, the evangelical South where everyone's a Christian. It's a really tough question to ask. But we've got to start asking, have I really received the grace of Jesus? Has it really touched my life? I'm not, calling, I'm not asking for any of you to doubt your salvation, but I'm just... I'm just Saying maybe we should think about this a little bit more. This, by the, by the way, this is my biggest point. So not all of them are. I know it's been three months or three weeks since I preached. I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half. Probably just an hour and fifteen minutes. So let's turn to Isaiah 55 just real quick here. I was reading this yesterday in my quiet time, and it was it's amazing what's going on here. We're going to read three verses here: Isaiah 55, four and five, and then Isaiah 55. Uh, 11. It's talking about the character of the God and the, the role of God's people. Listen to this. Behold, I made him a witness. He made who? He made David a witness. He makes King David a witness to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. He goes on to say this. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, David. And they shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. Let's think about that. He's talking about the Great Commission here. The Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Every tribe, tongue, nation. He's saying, David, look, you're going to call out and they're going to run to you not because you're this beautiful king, but because you're my ambassador. They're going to come to you, David. See, a lot of times we think that we're responsible for getting people to come to Jesus. Well, let's see what Isaiah goes on to say in 55.11, he says this, For shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Listen to this. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. A lot of times we think that it's our role to see people change, to see people converted. We are messengers. We are heralds of the Gospel. We embody it. We speak it. And God's work is to draw people to Himself. This is our responsibility. But here's, here's the question I had to begin asking myself. And maybe you have to ask yourself the same question as well. How do the lost and broken folks in the world that God intends to be running to those Christians for a hope, how are they to find us when we're hiding? In the darkest places of our community and our country, how are they to find us if we're hiding out? 
We're not covert Christians. There's no such thing as one of those. How are they to find us? How does God accomplish His purpose through mute testimonies? Friends, it's not our responsibility to determine the outcomes of God's work going forth. Of God's Word going forth. But He accomplishes His purpose as we are obedient to Him. Church, we are poised and positioned for effective Gospel witness in the world. Right now and today. I spend most of my time trying to convince people that they're sinners. I'm not kidding. Most people that I share the Gospel with, I spend most of my time trying to get them to see that they actually need Jesus. It's clear, is it not, in our community, in our world, in our nation, that we need Jesus, that we're sinners, that we're not better than what's happening. We're poised in position to offer hope. Second point is this. Witnesses of Jesus recall His presence continually. If God seems distant to you today, if God seems far off, if you feel unworthy to receive, to be brought into the family of God today, the Bible has really good news for you. Because the Bible is filled with people who feel exactly the way that you feel. And this is Stephen's whole point. Because remember, Stephen, uh, they, they brought him up on charges because he's blasphemed against God's Word and God's temple. And Stephen's like, hey, guys, let me show you what the temple is really about. You think the temple is about this building where God's presence is, and while that may be a reality, that's really pointing to the fact that God is with His people wherever they are. Let me show you how he says this three or four different times in Acts. Let's, uh, let's turn to Acts 7, 1-3 through uh, quickly here. And we're just going to be looking at a couple of different examples here. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So why does Stephen share this before them? Abraham is in a pagan worshiping community. He doesn't know God. Now does God wait for him to, for Abraham to find God? God goes to Abraham. And He draws him to Himself. He, he, he draws him to himself when he's in the midst of a pagan worshiping community. And he meets him. And not only that, he positions him to be a man that blesses the whole world. This sinful man who lives in a sinful nation, in a sinful community, full of sinners, God meets him. And he changes his life and he blessed you and me through that. And the promise for Abraham was this. That he would be the father of many nations, and that he would have a home, that would have land to dwell in, the land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. The, the promise was twofold. God enters into this relationship with Abraham and He says, look, if you, if you remember the story, I think it's in Genesis 15, He makes this promise to Abraham. This kind of one-sided promise. It says, look Abram, you're not going to be able to keep up your end of the bargain without my help. But I'm, going to, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand here with you. I'm going to keep my end of the deal even when you can't. 
And he cuts a covenant with him. And these, he puts him to sleep. And, and as this whole ceremony is going on, these smoking pots pass through the sacrifice. And, and what it's signifying is this reality that even when we can't keep our end of the deal, God keeps us in. And He comes and He meets us. God can meet us and keep us even when we're in a distant land. Some of us in here today are in a distant land. You haven't darkened the doors of a church in a long time. And you're here. You're here. You don't really know why you're here, but you're here. I know this because people that, that are not yet Christ followers come to New City Church every single week. You're, you're here, and you're wondering if this Jesus person is real and if the news that He shares about sins being forgiven and hope being had can really be true for you. Abraham. Case study number one. Let's go to number two. Acts 7, 9-10. through 10. Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Joseph. I mean, I, got, I have to believe that Joseph is beginning to doubt the goodness of God when the slave trailer pulls up and takes him to Egypt. You know what I'm saying? His brothers have really sold him into slavery. And he's on his way to Egypt. I have to imagine that he would doubt the goodness of God in the midst of his adversity. But in Genesis 50-20, the Scriptures proclaim that what, God, what, what, what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good. God is in control of all things. Church, do you believe right now that God is with you causing all things to work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose in the midst of your adversity? If I were to list all of the adversity that all of you are going through in this room and put it on a wall, it would be too much to bear. Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that He's with you? Do you believe that He can meet you in that? Or do you believe that you still have to go and find Him? The great promise of the, the great commission that God gives us is sure, go make disciples, but it's also that He is going to be with us to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. He's with us, church. He's always been with His people. He's with us in the midst of our adversity. Okay, study number three, if you're not believing it yet, guys. Moses. Now Moses is this illegitimate child. He's, his parents, he's born in Egypt, and his parents have to give him up because there's a decree that's been issued that's going to it's going to take all the kids lives. It's not the first time that happens in the Bible, and it happens a lot. It happens in fear when the when God's people begin to outnumber uh, the folks that want to try to control them. And so his parents do the only thing that they know to do. They put him in a basket and they send him down the river. All seems lost, doesn't it? There's a baby floating down the river. All seems lost. Not so. He's found by the river in a foreign land. He's picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter. So here goes Moses, floating down a river, picked up by royalty and ushered into the palace. He was a foreigner in a foreign land brought into the family. Acts 7, 30-34, listen to this. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. Okay, I've got to stop and set the rest of this up. So what happens to Moses? Moses is raised up 
uh, Moses is he's, he's like in charge. I mean, he's got a lot of authority. He's got a lot of power in Egypt. One day, Moses is an Israelite. He's in Egypt. Um, one day, he sees an Israelite kind of being persecuted, being mistreated. And Moses, I mean, he flips a switch. And he boils over with anger. And you know what he does? He goes and kills a man. Because he's so angry about God's people being mistreated. He goes and he kills a man. Then he goes on to the next day thinking that maybe no one saw him. And someone brings it up, the fact that they saw him. Moses freaks out and he heads to the wilderness. How long is he in the wilderness? 40 years. This is where we pick up. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. So he's running. Moses is running because he's a sinner. Of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the, vo- I am the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look at the Lord. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet for this place where you are standing is holy ground. I have sh- surely seen the affliction of my people who are in e- Egypt. And I have heard their moaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come. Moses, I'm not done with you, you dirty, rotten sinner. I'm going to send you to Egypt. You're going to be the redeemer of the people. Think about that. Moses, this dirty, rotten murderer. God draws to himself. He meets him in this burning bush. And you know what he's saying right there when he tells him to take his shoes off? You're on holy ground. Moses, it's like you're standing in the holy of holies in the middle of the temple. I'm here with you and you're running. Not for a second have I left you, Moses. Believe in me. Believe that you can be forgiven. Go and I've got, I've got a plan for you, Moses. Do you feel like you're washed up and no good in the kingdom? Do you feel like that because of your sin? Because of your history? Because of your status? Because of whatever's gone in your life? Do you feel like God can't use you anymore as His witness to testify to the goodness of who Jesus is? You're dead wrong. You could tell me anything you want to tell me that's happened in your life, and I would say God can still use you. Because I see it in the Bible. And this is the purpose that Stephen is making as he's sharing these things. Let me tell you about God's plan. Let me tell you about the real presence of God and how He's been with these sinners the whole time. Isn't this a picture of our royal adoption in Christ? This situation with Moses. I mean, here's this, here's this baby left exposed floating down the river. He's cradled up into royalty and brought into the palace. Friends, this is, what, this is what God does to us when we believe in Jesus. He, he ushers us in. He adopts us into the family. And we are royalty because of the work of Christ. We're not unworthy. We're not useless. Christ is our identity. Let's move on. Witnesses of Jesus expect opposition. So I was serving in uh, New City Kids last week down the hall. And I had a great time. Some of the kids that were in my class are in here today. And I was learning from them, actually, uh, about Acts chapter 17. And, And the thing that stuck out about our conversation was this, is that when they proclaimed the good news, uh, <clears throat> when Paul and his associates proclaimed the good news in Thessalonica, I think it was Thessalonica, some believed and some mocked them. Some received the word with gladness and some rejected it. As I said a little bit earlier, I think we think that a faithful witness means that 
we kind of control the results. But a faithful witness is understanding that God accomplishes His purpose through His people as they speak His Word and as they embody His presence. And our temptation, our temptation a lot of times when we start to think about how our, our lost friends and our lost neighbors, our lost family members, our temptation is to alter the message to make it more palatable. And so what we do is this, is we, we say, hey, you know, you're, you're not really that bad. You just need a little Jesus on the side to kind of pick you up. A little, a little shot of Jesus to kind of get me going. To, to kind of give you a boost in your flesh. But when we, when we change the message of the Gospel, we lose the Gospel. When we say it's a little bit of you and it's a little bit of God and it's kind of this partnership for redemption, we lose the hope. It's like Augustine said. He said, if you believe what you like in the Gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. We should expect opposition. and we're going to show, I'm going to show you how Stephen kind of expects this as he's, he's just kind of showed the truth to them. We should expect opposition because there's nothing ordinary about a life being raised to the dead, from the dead. I mean, when you think about physical labor, is it a pain-free process? All the ladies said, mm-mm. It's not a pain-free process. Birthing new life is painful. And for us, church, it means that we've got to die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us. There has to be a death of our flesh so that Christ may dwell inside of us. Of course there's going to be opposition. Nobody wants to hear that they're dead on the inside. Listen to what Stephen says to him in Acts 7.51-53. He says, you stiff-necked people. That's a good start. Uncircumcised in the heart and in the ears. You always resist. You stiff-arm the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So when you hear this, Stephen is boldly expecting that this is not going to go well, but it does not change his message. And this is why I said that Stephen's death in fact, may have been more powerful than his life in Christ. Because there was so much Jesus in the way that he went out. God used it. There's nothing ordinary about a life being raised from the dead. And we have to hear the bad news before we'll ever receive the good news. We have to hear that we're dead on the inside. Circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant for the Jewish people. What he's saying is that your hearts are not circumcised. They're not, you're, you're, not, you're not regenerate Israel. You're not those who actually believe in Yahweh because you're rejecting the Savior that He sent. A very tough message. Lastly, witnesses of Jesus are filled with God's heart for the lost till the end. Let's <clears throat> read Acts 7, 54 and following. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they stopped their ears 
and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, listen to this, he's faithful to the end, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he's breathing his last breath, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The Gospel is a hard, hard message to hear. Our flesh resists it because it puts a full-on assault against our flesh. Uprooting anything that we have to prove and discarding it. And we have to stand and say that Jesus is the only way. Nothing of myself can I bring. Only to the cross do I cling. That's all we have to offer. The birth of new spiritual life is so painful. And Stephen, filled with love for the loss that would take his life to the end. I'm reminded of a guy named John Watson. John Watson was a Scottish pastor. And his mother died at a very... He was a pretty, pretty young guy when his mom died. And he had just been called into the ministry. And on his mother's deathbed, here's what, here's what his mom told him. And this, this began to shape the rest of his life. He said, John, whatever you do, it's her last words, her last moments of life on earth. She says, say a good word for Jesus. Whatever you do, say a good word for Jesus, John. And so what he began to do for the rest of his life was to say a good word for Jesus in every opportunity that he had. It was said that as he would walk through the community, he would, he would, he would, he would love on this, this little community of Drumtakti. And when he was walking somewhere, he would get caught up in conversation with people because he was a pastor for the, the parish, the community there. And he would, he would get caught, so caught up in talking about their lives and the life of Christ in the midst of it all, they would forget where he was going because he loved the lost and loved his community so much. What would it look like if that was our posture? If we embodied the life of Christ and proclaimed the good news of the Gospel together like that? What if we loved the lost to the end? What would that look like for us? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Stephen. Father, we're thankful because You used His death for the Gospel to come to us. Father, would You grip our hearts in such a way that we would be compelled to share the only thing that's worthy of sharing, which is Your Son, Jesus. God, convict our hearts where they need to be convicted. Encourage our hearts where they need to be encouraged in the Gospel. We're wounded people with a great Savior. And that's not going to change until Jesus returns. So Father, I pray that You would meet us wherever we're at today. Whether we think You're so distant that we can never be near to You. Or whether our testimony is so mute that no one can hear it. Wherever we're at on this, I pray that You'd give us the testimony of the blind man from John 9. 
one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.